Good morning. My name is Ryan Chase, and I have the privilege of serving as another one of the pastors here at Emmaus Road. And what a gospel. What great news that we have already rehearsed and song together this morning. I want to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. We're going to be in verses 1 through 14. And as you turn there, let me tell you about two believers. Peter grew up in the church his whole life. As long as he can remember, he's believed God's word. He never really had any wayward, rebellious years. His faith in Jesus has grown and matured over the years, and he enjoys reading and discussing theology, but he has carried a secret shame ever since he gave in to temptation with his girlfriend, and he doesn't know what to do. Amanda first heard the gospel and trusted Jesus in college. Her life was dramatically transformed, her relationships, her priorities, her habits, but one thing has not yet changed, and that's her relationship with food. She's able to hide it, pretty well. She seems to eat normally around others, but behind the scenes, she counts every calorie, watches the scale obsessively, and purges religiously, terrified of gaining weight. And these thoughts seem to consume her. She feels like she can't get free. And both Peter and Amanda feel like hypocrites, That's the the dominant feeling that they share. One fell in a moment, the other battles daily with ongoing eating disorder, but both feel like frauds. They believe in Jesus, they go to church, they participate in gospel community, but behind the smiles and their raised hands, there is shame and guilt and condemnation. How can you enjoy God's favor when you are aware that you deserve his wrath. Maybe you can relate to one of them. Maybe you can't seem to get your temper under control with your kids, or maybe you're secretly addicted to pornography still and terrified to tell anyone, or maybe there's some major sin in your past that just haunts you relentlessly. Whatever it is for you, listen to God's word in Exodus 32. I want to invite you to stand with me out of reverence for God and his authoritative word as I read verses 1 through 14. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said 
to Moses, go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Father, this is your word. We receive it, and we believe it. Help our unbelief. And would you magnify the greatness of your mercy toward us in Jesus Christ for every weary soul, every guilty and ashamed conscience, every burdened Christian, and every unconverted heart in this place. Oh God, would you magnify the gospel of Jesus Christ before the eyes of our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Exodus 32, 1 through 14 is a tragic turn of events in the book of Exodus. But it contains the most joyous message. Even though you deserve God's wrath, God deals mercifully with you in Jesus. Even though you deserve God's wrath, God deals mercifully with you in Jesus. Here at Mount Sinai, human depravity and idolatry is on full display, but all of that merely serves to magnify the greatness of the mercy of God. This story unfolds in four scenes. Idolatry, wrath, intercession, and mercy. That's how we're going to work our way through the text, beginning with idolatry in verses 1 through 6. If the description of the tabernacle, which we looked at last week in Exodus 25 through 31, evoked images of the Garden of Eden, and renewed humanity's hope that God would one day, once again, dwell on earth with people, then Exodus 32 echoes that tragic fall in the garden. Exodus 19 through 31 was the ultimate mountaintop experience, complete with thunder and lightning and smoke and fire and the audible voice of God and a visible display of the glory of God on the mountain. But all of that Building hope and anticipation comes crashing down in Exodus 32, verse 1. At this point, Moses has been up on the mountain 
nearly 40 days. And the people obviously are growing anxious and impatient, so they take matters into their own hands. One commentator translates verse 1, the people ganged up on Aaron. It is a scene of an angry mob in opposition, and their demand is shocking, especially in light of the chapters that have come before. Up. Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron complied. He fashioned a golden calf, built an altar. People offered sacrifices. They feasted and they celebrated and they worshipped passionately. There's a lot of debate between scholars about whether the people here broke the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, or the second You shall not make for yourself a carved image. On the one hand, the people speak of gods in the plural. Make us gods who shall go before us, verse 1. And after Aaron makes the calf, they declare triumphantly, these, plural, these are your gods, O Israel. On the other hand, it seems like what they wanted was a visible representation of the Lord, of Yahweh. They say in verse 4, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, referring to historical events they experienced. Verse 5 says, Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. That's the word Yahweh. Somehow they're trying to tie the two together. Now, it might seem strange to you, at least it does to me, that the image they chose to make was a calf. Seems kind of like naming a baseball team the Canaries. Not the most fear-inducing mascot. But in Egypt, there were numerous deities represented by cows and bulls. And this is most likely the image of a young bull, which symbolized to these people power and strength. So the image of a young bull was supposed to represent Yahweh and his power and his strength as a visible image they could see and once again have some hope and peace since Moses has been absent for so long. Whether the primary motivation was to reject one true God and replace him with multiple other gods or to visibly represent the Lord in the image of a bull doesn't really make much of a difference. The point is the same either way. The people who had been redeemed from slavery by God's power, the people who had walked through the Red Sea as on dry land, the the very people who ate manna from heaven and received God's law at Mount Sinai and had agreed willingly to enter into a covenant with God, those same people immediately, immediately and overtly violated the foundation of God's entire law. We've been saying for weeks that the covenant ceremony at Mount Sinai, best thing that we have to relate to that is a wedding ceremony. God took Israel to be his bride. Israel swore to be faithful to God. But before the tabernacle was yet built, before Moses had even come down the mountain to deliver the instructions for the tabernacle where God would dwell with his bride, Israel had already broken the covenant. The timing and the nature of Israel's sin is so Appalling. Israel's idolatry is like a new bride committing adultery 
on her honeymoon before the new couple has even moved into their home together. And at the root of this disobedience toward God was dissatisfaction with God. The people wanted a God they could see. John Calvin writes, the example of the Israelites shows the origin of idolatry to be that men do not believe God is with them unless he shows himself physically present. Can you relate to that doubt, that unbelief? Exodus 32.1 emphasizes this when it says, when the people saw that Moses delayed. They're looking around with their eyes at their situation. They're interpreting their situation with their minds. They act on what their eyes see rather than what they have heard from God. Isn't that the root of all of our sin? Just think back to Exodus 14 at the Red Sea. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly and the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. All the way back to the garden, this is what Eve did. Genesis 3, 6 recounts, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, she took of its fruit and ate. Living by faith means trusting what God has said no matter what you see or feel. Invisibility is one of God's attributes. The fact that God is spirit, the fact that he is too glorious to be perceived by our physical senses is not a flaw. It's not a limitation in God. There are light waves that our eyes can't detect. There are sound waves we cannot hear. Our senses are limited. God is not. But as John Calvin said, the human heart is a perpetual factory of idols. We are by nature. We just pump out idols. Whatever we can see, whatever we hear, whatever we feel, that's what seems most real to us. The nature of idolatry is to choose a God of our own making over the true and living God. Psalm 106, verses 19 through 22, recounts these events like this. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Scripture always presents idolatry to us as idiotic, irrational, nonsensical. But a great danger in reading the Bible is to read about the sins of others and think, I would never be that stupid. It's tempting to scoff at the idolatry of the ancients. They, they worshipped a cow made out of gold? John Calvin writes, we must not think the heathen so stupid that they did not understand God to be something other than stocks and stones. The ancients didn't believe that a golden object was God, but that divine power resided there in that image. That image helped them feel closer to God, gave them something tangible to look to and to pray to. 
And aren't we the same? Just because we don't necessarily make carved idols doesn't mean that we aren't also prone to idolatry in our hearts. Exodus 32 is a paradigm for the sinful condition of all humanity. And Paul universalizes the golden calf in Exodus 32 when he writes in Romans 1, think about the echo of this language, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And that's our problem. We prefer that which we can see and touch to the glory of God that we can't see. We choose to believe lies that make us feel better about ourselves than the truth of God that convicts us and corrects us. We seek our satisfaction and security in created things rather than the creator. This is the human condition, your condition, my condition. And the scene in Exodus 32, coming right on the heels of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, demonstrates to us God's law, as holy and righteous and good as it is, is powerless to change idolatrous hearts. So we come to scene two, wrath. In verse seven, the scene changes to the top of the mountain where God informs Moses of the idolatrous incident happening down below. Verse seven says, and the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Notice those pronouns. Your people whom you brought up Israel's sin has broken fellowship with God, and God says they have corrupted themselves. One commentator says that word corrupt indicates depraved moral conduct, which renders them offensive in the sight of God. Their actions had rendered them unfit to be recognized as the Lord's people. In verse 8, God expresses displeasure at how quickly they have disobeyed. His commands. And in verse 9, he says, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff necked people. Stiff necked was a word used to describe an animal, a beast of burden that was worthless for working the land because it refused to bend its neck to receive a yoke. From this point on, it becomes one of Scripture's most familiar ways of referring to the people of Israel. They are a stiff-necked people. Stephen, in the New Testament, in his sermon in Acts, preaches to the people of Israel and calls them a stiff-necked people. This is how you've always been. And then God communicates this devastating assessment. The people are disqualified. They are useless for God's purposes because they violated God's covenant. And God communicates to Moses his holy response to this particular situation. Verse 10, now therefore let me alone. Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. This sounds reminiscent of the days of Noah when God dealt with humanity's moral corruption by wiping out all flesh and preserving one man, Noah, and his family. God's righteous wrath burns against sin to consume it completely from his presence. 
violating God's covenant deserves. This is the just penalty for sin. It deserves complete destruction. This is God's righteousness, his justice on display. And this again is the human condition. The very predicament we find ourselves in. Paul writes in Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And he adds in verse 32, though they do not know God's, uh, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. Not only do they do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And in Ephesians 2, 3, Paul says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and the mind. And we were, by nature, children of wrath. By nature, children of wrath. Exodus 32 presents the greatest dilemma in human history. How can a holy and just God fulfill his promise and his purpose to bless his redeemed people who violate his law and provoke his wrath and earn his judgment? Exodus 32 prompts every one of us to ask, how can God be favorable to me when my sin deserves his wrath? And notice how God's response to Israel's sin is not at all like the way we respond to sin. Those who fashion gods in their own image, in their own likeness, of their own making, we like to assume God deals with sin the way that we do. What what do we do with sin? Well, we minimize it. We downplay it. We talk about our mistakes instead of our immorality. We talk about our struggles instead of sin. We prefer the word weakness to wickedness. We like to think of a God in our own image who also overlooks sin, sweeps it under the rug, turns a blind eye, ignores it. That is not what a holy God does. God's response here, which he communicates to Moses, his response to Israel's idolatry leaves no hope that sin is going to be excused. In fact, God made this clear in the second commandment back in Exodus 20. The commandment that forbids idolatry when God said, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Great if you love God and keep his commandments, but what if you violate his law? When God expresses his displeasure to Moses, he is upholding his word. And then we come to verse 11. I call this scene intercession. There is a glimmer of hope that emerges here with these words, but, but, Moses implored the Lord his God. As the mediator who stood between God and his people, Moses began to intercede for his people and pay careful attention to Moses' logic in this prayer. First, Moses appealed to God's past work of salvation. Verse 11, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? God had distanced himself from his people and their sin when he called them your people to Moses 
Now Moses turns around and calls them your people. On the basis of God's work in history, you brought them out of the land of Egypt. They are the people that Moses represents before the Lord, and so God is right. But they are also the people that God redeemed from slavery to be his people, and so Moses is right. And this was the foundation of the law that God had given. Before he gave a single commandment, he told them, Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Next, Moses appealed to God's passion for his own glory in verse 12. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Once again, Moses is praying God's own word back to God. God had said back in Exodus chapter 7, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. God is going to cause Egypt and the nations to see his glory. What will happen if God consumes those people that he delivered? Moses appeals to God's commitment to uphold the honor of his name. And he does this because there is nothing in the people that Moses can base his appeal on. There's nothing in them worthy. There's nothing deserving. They are guilty and they deserve to be consumed. And so instead Moses appeals to God's name. And God's name is connected to the preservation of these people. In Exodus, excuse me, Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 13 through 14 confirm that this is God's motive for showing mercy to ill-deserving people. Speaking of these events, God later said, Then I said I would pour out my wrath upon them in the wilderness to make a full end of them. But... I acted for the sake of my name, that it, my name, should not be profaned in the sight of the nations in whose sight I had brought them out. Third, Moses simply pleads for mercy when he prays, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. That word relent is found in the same form in Hebrew and only one other place in Scripture, it's in Psalm 90, which is titled, A Psalm of Moses, the man of God. In verse 13 there, praise, return, O Lord, how long? Here's the same word translated, have pity. Have pity on your servants. M Moses is not arguing that God's anger is an overreaction. He's not saying that's unjust, that's not fair. He he's just asking for undeserved mercy. And in asking for mercy, he is acknowledging the guilt of these people. And finally, he appeals to God's covenant promises when he prays in verse 13, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to, to whom you swore by your own self. You, you swore by yourself and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Moses is expressing as a mediator, faith in God's promises on behalf of God's people. And notice how every one of his reasons is rooted in God himself. God's character, God's works, God's mercy, God's passion for his own name, God's promises. And then there's verse 14. Mercy. It simply says, 
and the Lord relented. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. And the Lord relented. Those are among the sweetest words in all of Scripture. You see, Exodus 32 is not just a paradigm for human sin and idolatry on full-blown display. It is a revelation of the God who relents. Throughout Exodus, think of all the ways that God has been revealing himself. He is, at the burning bush, the great I Am. He is the sovereign king who rules over Pharaoh and all the nations on earth. He is redeemer and provider and sustainer and lawgiver. But here we see that the holy God of Sinai who burns with righteous anger and indignation against sin is also a God who is willing to relent from bringing on sinners the disaster that we deserve. He is the merciful God. And don't think that the way this played out was God overreacted and then Moses talked him down. There's a common misunderstanding of the gospel like that where people think God the Father is the one who's angry at sinners and then along comes God the Son who's nice and kind and loving and can kind of get the Father to mellow out a little bit. No, in God's interaction with Moses, it was actually God who was inviting Moses to intercede. God was the one who said to Moses in verse 10, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. God is implying to Moses, mercy is available and judgment may be averted if you stay in my way. Get out of the way and they die. And Moses doesn't move. When God called Israel your people, he's communicating to Moses, you are their representative. What do you have to say for them? And by expressing his anger and wrath, God was giving Moses an opportunity to seek mercy. So don't think God is here in this scene fickle, capricious, prone to mood swings. No, God is entirely unchanging in his character. He is always wrathful towards sin. And that same God is always merciful toward the humble and contrite. Think of it like the sun, which from our perspective appears to move. It looks like it rises and it looks like it sets, but of course, we know we're the ones moving around the sun. From man's perspective, it may appear that God changes from wrath to mercy, but the change was not in God, the change was in man. When Moses, acting as a mediator and interceded for Israel and expressed repentance for Israel's sin and expressed faith in God's promises, that's when God expresses his mercy. Psalm 106, 23 says, Therefore he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one. This was the will of God. His chosen one stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses stood in the breach. And here we see the answer to our dilemma. How can a holy and just God fulfill his promise to bless his redeemed people? People who have violated his law and provoked his wrath and earned his judgment? 
God deals mercifully with his people through an intercessor. Only a sinless mediator could turn away God's righteous wrath. This is gospel. This is good news. Just like Israel, you have relied on what your eyes see instead of what God has said, haven't you? You've broken your resolutions to be better. Your efforts to try harder have failed. The good you want to do, you've failed to do. So how can you enjoy God's favor when you know you deserve God's wrath? You can enjoy God's mercy by trusting in God's mediator, Jesus Christ. As Paul writes in Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's all our hope. He is pleading your case based on his righteous life and his wrath-absorbing death. And he's alive. So he goes on interceding for you. So confess your sin to the Lord. Respond to his mercy by turning from sin and confessing to the Lord and confessing to anyone you've sinned against. Forsake every idol that your heart devises and trust in Christ alone. And when you come before the Lord, well aware your guilty thoughts, you know your past, you know who you are, you know what you are, you know that you are ill-deserving, you can rest in this hope that God will deal mercifully with you in Christ. As Proverbs 28, 13 says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will, that is a promise, will obtain mercy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we, we marvel at your mercy when we understand your holiness, when we perceive the justness of your wrath, when we are aware of our sin and the idolatry of our hearts. We know the disaster that we deserve. Would you cause us to marvel at your mercy? We pray this morning, again, Father, for every convicted soul, every bothered conscience, anyone in this place who feels like a fraud, like a hypocrite. Oh God, we pray that Christ Jesus, our mediator, our intercessor, would be their hope. You are our only hope, Lord Jesus, and we treasure you with all our hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.